in our fast-paced world of achievement and accomplishment, the word up is filled with all sorts of positive connotations. We, we associate it with everything that we want and that we want to be. Upwardly mobile, upgraded, upbeat, upscale. We like things to be on the upswing. We usually avoid things associated with the word down, right? Downhearted, downward trend, downscale, crack down, break down, shut down, down the river. Things that we don't want anyone to know about, we keep on the down low, right? If we're feeling optimistic and hopeful, we say we're up, but if we're down in the dumps, we're told not to be such a Debbie Downer. When we post something we like, uh, or when we post something on social media um, and people like it, they give it a thumbs up, all right? But then it kind of hurts. It stings, right? When people give it a thumbs down, all right? If we approve of something, we give it an upvote, but if we disapprove it, it gets a downvote. We'd rather be in the upper class than the lower class. A bull market is up, a bear market is down. If you're making the big bucks, you can move up to the penthouse apartment, but if you've fallen on hard times, you're moving down into mom's basement. Now, I've read some different theories as to why, but... Our society uh, has a negative association with most things down. Um, We all like a markdown, but none of us wants to be let down, put down, or beat down, right? After nine months of COVID, we're all feeling a little rundown. Meanwhile, up is the life of the party, right? Everyone wants in a culture infatuated with everything up that does everything to avoid down, then the hardest passage in the Bible may very well be our core verses this week, found in Philippians 2, 5 through 7, all right? And they're all about moving down. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, these verses are all about humility. And our example, our model for humility is Jesus himself. He looked down onto a human race that was down and out and out of options, right? He left his lofty heavenly throne and he came down among us. He took the ultimate downgrade, setting aside his divine nature and becoming like one of us. He came down to our level, right? And this is the attitude. This is the mindset we are to have, all right? We are to think like Jesus. Uh, Philippians 2 is our call to humility. This is our call to go down and to help others up. Now, we talked a little bit uh, about humility last week as, as an essential ingredient to unity. But this week, the focus is entirely on humility. And Paul gives us the greatest example of humility ever, and that is the life of Jesus. 
And I like how the NIV phrases verse five, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Paul says that to have the true humility, we need to think like Jesus. And how did Jesus think? What was his mindset? Well, it tells us in verses six, seven, and eight. Who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking on the very nature of a servant, all right, talking about human flesh there, being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death, on a cross. Hmm. Do you hear it in those words? That even though he was equal with God, he, he didn't use it to his advantage. He made himself nothing. He took on the nature of a servant. He, was, he humbled himself. He was obedient. Jesus gave up the position that he had as the Son of God. He gave up his power that he had as the Son of God. He gave up the perks that he had as the Son of God, and he gave it all up. Position, power, perks for you to die on the cross for your sin. He came down to lift you up. That's how Jesus thought, right? And that's how we're supposed to think. That's our model for humility. Jesus charts for us a, a different path to greatness. Bill Hybels has an excellent book called Descending into Greatness, and he writes this. If you want to be truly great, then the direction you must go is down. You must descend into greatness. Greatness is not a measure of self-will, but rather of self-abandonment. And the more you lose, <laughs> the more you gain. What does humility look like? Well, if you ever want to see Jesus, you need to go the direction he went. Uh, there's a quote from C.S. Lewis, or it's often attributed to C.S. Lewis, although he likely never said it. Um, doesn't really matter, though, because the quote is still good. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. If we want to think like Jesus, we're going to have to be willing to go where Jesus went. We're going to have to be willing to move down. Humility is seen when we Learn to give God the glory instead of taking the credit. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, 28, and then down in verse 31, he says, God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all. He chose me. He chose you. You do the math. And then in verse 31, therefore, as the scriptures say, if you want to boast, Boast only about the Lord. Humility is seen when we recognize that all of our gifts, our talents, our successes, that all of those ultimately come from God. 1 Corinthians 4, 7b, 
what do you have that God hasn't given you? And if everything you have is from God, then why boast as though it were not a gift? Humility is also seen when we acknowledge that God is in control of all things, right? James, in his little letter, warned against uh, pride and arrogance when it comes to our plans and our purposes in life. And in James 4.15, he writes, what you ought to say, talking about making plans, if the Lord wants us to, we will live and do this or that, right? Lord willing. Finally, humility is seen when we forgive one another. Colossians 3.13 says, make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you, right? Anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. It's not optional. Humility is seen when we serve one another. Think of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Humility is seen when we move from me first to you first. Right here in Philippians 2.3, in humility, count others. It's more significant than yourselves. So our core verses are a call of hum to humility using the example of Jesus. But if we back up a few verses, Paul begins chapter 2 listing four motivations for humility, for thinking like Jesus, right? He writes, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, and affection and sympathy, right? if these things are true, Paul writes. It doesn't mean that he doesn't think they're true. These are rhetorical ifs, and each if anticipates an answer of, yes, that's true. So, so read these ifs like the word since, right? Since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is comfort from love, since there is participation in the Spirit, since there is affection and sympathy, He's asking us to consider our own salvation experience, right? If your salvation is real, then each of these things are true. These are things that each person receives from Christ in their salvation. Now, we may not always feel it. We may not always experience because we don't do a good job of thinking like Jesus. But our first motivation to humility is the encouragement we receive from being united with Christ. In salvation, we've had the burden of our sin just taken from our lives. Hope has been restored for, to our hearts. The shroud of darkness has been lifted and replaced with light. Our second motivation is the comfort we receive from Christ's love. Right? When we deserve judgment, Jesus gave grace. Instead of wrath, mercy, and the knowledge that we are unconditionally loved, right? that we don't have to measure up to some impossible standard, that we don't have to earn our salvation by our own strength, right? that comforts our soul. Our third motivation is uh, the fellowship that we have with the Holy Spirit, all right? The Holy Spirit living within us helps us to think like Jesus. Christ does not 
save us and then leave us on our own, but he gave us his own spirit to live on our lives. And, and I like the word participation here. The word that's used here means a partnership or, or a fellowship, right? And Jesus' own spirit participates in our lives, in your life, becoming your partner in the life and living the life of Christ. Our fourth motivation is the affection and the sympathy that we receive from Christ. All right, this is tenderness and, and compassion. If you still use the old King James Version, you'll see kind of a funny phrase here, the bowels of compassion. Usually when I've got something going on in my bowels, it's not compassion that I'm feeling. But King Jimmy actually gets this image from the original Greek, right? We view compassion or sympathy as something that comes from the, the heart, right? But the ancient Greeks, our ancient brothers and sisters, viewed, viewed the, the lower internal organs as the seat of our emotions and compassion. So look at it this way. Because of what Jesus did for us, we can feel for others way deep down in our guts, right? Not just a superficial sympathy, but a compassion that goes deep. Think of Jesus' compassion as he wept over Jerusalem, longing for her salvation. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Or Jesus, as he wept with, with Mary and her sister, Martha, over the death of their brother, Lazarus. We can feel that kind of tenderness and compassion for each other. And the truth, the reality of these four ifs is all the motivation we need to think like Jesus. Right? These four ifs are then followed by some pretty powerful thens, all right? what we'll call attitudes of humility. Before I was going to be a preacher, I, I, I wanted to be a computer programmer. I studied programming, uh, went to school, uh, even got my first programming job. And in computer programming, the, the simple if-then statement is, is one of the most essential you know, guiding statements that controls the flow and, and function of a computer program. Right? If this thing is true, Right? If this variable is in place, then perform this function. However, if this variable is not true, then perform that function. Right, And that's how a computer program works. Paul is saying that, that if these things are true, then here are the attitudes that we need to have in Christ. He writes, then complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love, of being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul is saying that if your experience of salvation is true, and if you really know Jesus as Lord, then then these will be the guiding attitudes of your life, right? And it's important to note just a couple of things here. First, this passage shows a very strong connection between our relationship with Jesus 
and our relationships with each other, right? When you look at verses one and then two and three, you're going to see that Paul makes a, a direct connection between those two things. You cannot claim to love Jesus, but not love his people, right? They go together. The second thing to note is that, that Paul encourages four attitudes, not actions, right? We focus on action so much today. You know, we want Paul to say, do A, B, and C, do this, right? But instead, he focuses on our attitudes, right? It's not that what you do doesn't matter, but what you do begins with who you are, right? Doing begins with being. Doing begins with being. And that's fundamental. One of my favorite teacher, teachers, Alan Algram, loves to say that we are human beings, not human doings, right? The world focuses on what you do, but, but God's first concerned about who you are. All right, so what are these four attitudes, these, these four ways we are supposed to be? Well, first of all, Paul says that we are to be of the same mind. Now, this doesn't mean that we all have to think alike or have the same opinions on everything, right? Unity doesn't mean that we become clones, right? We are not the Borg like in Star Trek. Resistance is futile. You will be assimilated, right? One of the characteristics of humility is that it is voluntary. It can't be forced. It can't be coaxed. It must be given. And humility doesn't require that you give up your individuality. The word Paul uses here means to direct one's mind to a thing, right? It's about what you're focused on. We are not mindless drones, but we are to have our minds committed to the same ends. We must hold our highest goals and deepest values in common. Right? Now, we might have different ideas and approaches on getting there, but we all need to be heading in that same direction, right? It's having the same mind. All right, secondly, we're to have the same love. During early church history, the Roman emperor Hadrian sent a man by the name of Aristides to, to spy out this mysterious new religion of Christianity, right? And Aristides infiltrated the church by posing as a new convert to Christianity, and then he would report back to Emperor Hadrian. Now, his report contained just a variety of information, but one declaration that Aristides made speaks volumes. He wrote this, behold, how they love one another. Behold, how they love one another. Imagine if an Aristides type infiltrated the church today and he was reporting back to somebody, what would he say? Behold, how they love one another. Is that what he would say? Or behold, how they judge one another. Behold, how they seek their own. Behold how they talk about one another. Thirdly, we're to be united in purpose. Now, our text in the English Standard Version translation says that we are to be in 
full accord. Right now, I love the ESV translation, but I've got to admit, I, I don't like this one. All right, this is clunky as it gets. Right, we just don't talk like this. Hey, Roger, we both like fishing, so let's be a full accord and go fishing. Right? Accord is a unity word. Right, it means to be in one spirit, one in soul, all right? To be one way down deep where it counts. We might be different in a lot of superficial ways, but we are one way down deep where it counts. Now, Satan will try to convince you that it's these superficial differences that matter most, but they don't. It's our soul unity that matters. And then Paul talks about being of one mind again. It's the same words he just used to have our mind set on the same thing. So when you combine that with soul unity, way down deep unity, it means to be committed to the same purpose. And one of the things that's killing the church today is that everyone is pursuing their own purpose. So in any church, you know, you've got 60, 70, 80 or more different purposes being pursued. And everyone wants something different out of church. And if they don't get it, well, then they're going to throw a fit or they're going to go somewhere else. But Paul says, no, we need to be united in pursuing God's purpose, right? even if that means that in humility, we set aside our own purpose. We can be different in lots of ways, but we have to be committed to our two ultimate purposes. We have to be one in two things, loving God and loving people. And if you aren't humble enough to commit to those two things beyond all else, or if you are humble enough, to commit to those two things above all else, then I can worship side by side with you. I can serve side by side with you. I can love you as a brother and a sister because you're family. That's what matters. Now, the fourth attitude is making others count, right? Not your own selfish ambition, but to humbly count others as more significant than yourself. Well, this doesn't mean that we don't think about ourselves at all. As verse 4 points out, we consider the interests of others as well as our own. I read about a phone company study where they, they studied 500 phone conversations, and the study revealed that the most used word was I. It was used over 4,000 times in 500 conversations. Now, when Paul says, count others more significant. Take note of that word count. Now, the NIV says value. This is not about how you feel about that other person. This, this isn't about your feelings. How you feel about them doesn't come into this calculation. But this is a bit of, a, a, a bit of mental accounting where you assign this other person a greater value in your mind. All right. I will regard them as though they are this valuable. I will treat them as though they have this much worth. Right? Because if we only treat other people what we feel they're worth, we're not going to make it. We're not going to make it as a people, as a church. 
right? We must learn to treat them according to what God says they're worth, right? And how did he figure? Well, he figured they were worth the life of his son. Now, does that calculation make a difference in what we say? Does it make a difference in what we do? Oh, you bet it does. And I'll guarantee you, whenever there's a problem in the church, doesn't matter what the problem is, but whenever there's a problem in the church, somebody somewhere has forgotten Philippians 2. Because when we are all following Philippians 2, we can overcome any challenge. What are you doing to make others count? I know this is tough stuff, right? It goes against every fiber of our individualistic culture. It rubs our selfish, sinful nature in every wrong way. Right? It flows in the opposite direction of our American blood. But God calls us to think like Jesus, to have the same mindset as Jesus, to humble ourselves. And instead of looking at something and thinking, well, how can I put them down to, to put myself on top? We've got to ask, how can I bend down to lift them up? What's keeping you from humility today? What's keeping you from humility? Is there a conversation that needs to happen this week, maybe even today, this afternoon, where you say these words? I'm sorry, I was wrong. Now, those might be the five toughest words to ever cross your lips. I'm sorry, I was wrong. No excuses, no justifications, no, but you just admit that you were wrong. Is there someone you need to ask forgiveness? Please forgive me. All right, those are probably the, the seventh, eighth, and ninth toughest words to say. But you know what the greatest words are to hear? I forgive you. Do you need to submit to some authority in, in, in an area of your life, at work, at school, God? Maybe just following these rules on wearing masks. Submitting to authority. That's humility. Do you need to begin serving in some manner? Right? Maybe there's someone else in your life that you need to start putting first right now. Your spouse, a sibling, that pain in the butt at work. Somebody at church? Do you need to become less self-focused and more God-focused? What's keeping you from humility today? Because here's the reality. Either you will humble yourself, you will be humble, or something or someone someday will humble you. They'll do it for you. But let me take you to the end of the story. Because this story doesn't end face down in the dirt. When Christians start talking about humility and putting others first, I think everyone's biggest fear is that they end up as a doormat. But this story does not end down low. It ends high and exalted. Jesus gave up everything for you.
He gave up heaven. He gave up glory. He gave up the worship and adoration of masses of countless angels worshiping and adoring him. He gave up power. He gave up authority. He gave up his limitless divine nature just to become like you, just like me. But now that he's done that, right? Now that he has lifted us up from our miserable state, verse 9 says, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Right, this is referring back to the ascension that we talked about several weeks ago, that Jesus is at the right hand on the throne, back in heaven where he belongs. All glory restored. Myriads and myriads of angels exalting his name. No longer fully man, but fully God. All present, all knowing, all powerful. And as someone who belongs to Jesus... Guess where your destiny is? That's right. From the lips of Jesus himself in Revelation 3.21, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. And we've talked about how big of a throne it is that has room for all of us. The path to greatness is not in the direction that the world claims. We beat each other senseless to be the king of the mountain, to get to the top of the ladder. But true exaltation is found in the other direction. Greatness begins with this most important act of humility. And this most important act of humility is found in, in verses 10 and 11 of Philippians 2. Paul writes at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Christ, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Did you hear that? Every knee will bow. Everyone will be humble before him. Everyone will confess that he is Lord of all. And you'll either do that here and now or there and then it's your choice but you will bow your knee you will be humble before him have you bowed before him have you humbled yourself before jesus have you confessed him as lord and savior you will never lower yourself more than Jesus lowered himself to love you. You will never give up more than Jesus gave up to gain you. You will never give up more than you gain in Jesus. And anything you might ever lose in humility, you will more than gain in the honor and glory of Jesus Christ. If you've not bowed your knee, but you are ready, then email me, call me, text me. I would love to, to bow my knee with you. Thank you, and God bless.